so there's still work for us to do. There are people to reach, people to encourage in the church. There is more worship and more praise, more prayers, more everything that needs to be done, right? Because if we were done, we'd be out of here. And so we're thankful that we have the opportunity to grow and to learn and to study God's Word together. Take your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're looking at these great words of Scripture, the foundation stones that our faith rests upon. And we need to begin at the very beginning, which would be the depravity of man. It's not a pleasant subject, certainly not a popular one, and I doubt it's one that was preached much across our land. People love entertaining messages. I do. People love fun messages and lots of good stories and lots of happy things. And it's nice to go home kind of amused. This isn't amusing. This is very sobering. The fact that God says all of us are totally depraved. But we want to talk about what that means and where we go from here. I think it gives us a greater appreciation for the cross. So in 2 Timothy, as Paul is days, maybe weeks, from his death, I don't know, do you think he had some panic in his heart? Do you think he began to think, wow, I have established churches and everyone I established had problems? I established churches and they either fought or they fell into false doctrine. There was envy and carnality. And he must have thought, how is this going to succeed? How in the world is it going to succeed? His own protege, Timothy, is timid in the faith. Timothy doesn't want to go to prison for the Lord's sake. He, it's, it's scary going out and proclaiming like Paul did. So he's kind of bolstering Timothy and letting Timothy know that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Timothy has to risk his, has to risk, risk his safety. He says in chapter 1, verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Timothy had to be told, don't be ashamed of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you not to be ashamed of Jesus Christ. It is hard when we get out in the world to, to bring up his name and to talk about him. We, why do we feel ashamed about the testimony of Jesus Christ? People have no problem speaking about Confucius or um, Muhammad or any of those false gods. But then he goes on, uh, Timothy, verse 8, Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. I think Timothy just didn't want to go to prison. He didn't want to suffer. I don't. Who wants to? It's neat that after this book is written, um, well, we find out in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, Timothy is in prison for the faith, and he's going to get out soon. So whatever happened, I think Timothy stepped up to the plate, like I want you to as well. And then he goes on, and he says that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, verse 12. For this reason, Paul says, I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Absolute assurance. And then look at verse 13. He says to Timothy, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So there's a pattern. There's an example, a, a pattern of and the word, sound words, it's the same word used in Titus over and over for healthy doctrine, hygienic, hygiene, 
free from contamination or germs. It's just pure. So Paul says there are pure words of Scripture that need to be held on to firmly. And our first one this evening is depravity. So I gave you a definition for depravity in your outline. The question of depravity is, how far did Adam fall when he fell into sin? The definition, it is not that man is as bad off, I mean, it is not that man is as bad as he can be, all right? It is the fact that man is as bad off as he can be. Okay, so for instance, when Adam fell into sin, the moment he fell into sin, he didn't, he didn't just become the crummiest character on earth. He was still a kind and a good and a gentle man. He still worked hard in the garden. He still provided for his family. He raised his children. He cared for his wife. So total depravity doesn't mean that man acts or his conduct is as bad as it can possibly be because there are good moral people that don't know Christ. They do good things. They're very caring. They're helpful in the community. They give to charity. They're, you know, so... There's some really bad characters out there, but when we talk about depravity, we're not talking about individual conduct. We're talking about the condition man is. Man is as far and separated from God as he possibly can be. Even though we can live in a good moral level, no matter what, whether you're real bad or very moral, you're still eternally separated and as far out from God as you possibly can be. That's the state of everybody on this planet however they think. Let's pray. Father, as we begin our study now of the great words of Scripture and we think about the condition of mankind in your eyes, we're not looking at what man thinks of man because we can all think of ourselves pretty good. We can always find people that are worse off and far worse character than us. Father, we really want to know what do you think of us? What is your estimation of mankind? we find that we are left in a desperate, lost, sinful, captive, miserable, condemning condition. We can never please you because we are totally depraved. And even though we do moral good things, none of those things please you because they're done out of the heart of the flesh. They're not done out of the spirit. So I thank you, Father, for this doctrine of depravity that begins with our condition, and then we can see your response to our sinful state. Thank you for the hope, love, mercy, and grace that is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that this would ignite us even more to love the cross, to love our Savior, and to be willing, above all things, to put him first. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so Titus, I'll go quickly back to Titus. So Paul leaves Titus on the island of Crete and tells Titus, you need to work in the churches to improve the things that are lacking. There were just things that are, weren't quite there yet, but that's true in every church. You go to any church in our community, I don't care if it's whatever, you go to any church on this planet and you will find that there's always a need for improvement. And he goes through the whole text, and he tells us areas we need improvement, and I've covered much of that in the first two chapters. And then he gives us the motivation, and he says, God's grace has appeared to all men in the person of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. That's this morning's text. Remember that? Jesus Christ gave himself for us and redeemed us from every lawless deed. So every lawless deed we have been purchased out of and that we might 
that he might purify for himself his own special people. He wants a treasured possession that is pure, cleansed from idolatry and sin. And I mentioned this morning, Isaiah 43, where Isaiah 43 went to, God said to them, listen, you were my treasured possession in the Old Testament, and yet you never called upon me. You never offered me your burnt offerings, which were all voluntary. Remember that you could offer different sacrifices. If you loved the Lord, you would wake up and say, hey, tomorrow's Monday. I love the Lord so much, I'm going to offer him a burnt offering. And then you'd look at all of, your, all of your animals, and you would, based on the condition of your heart, pick what you wanted to give God. And if your heart was crummy, you would look at the cat and say, okay, I'll give the Lord my cat. Oh, sorry, no cat. I would say, you have a, you have a sheep that's just going to die anyways? You could say, all right, let's give the Lord that one, dear. Or you could talk to your wife and say, listen, we love the Lord so much. The oxen that we have... That's our work animal. And let's give the Lord that. When we kill the oxen and get nothing back, because it's burnt, which a burnt offering means how much is left? Zero. Everything's burnt to a crisp. You don't get anything. You don't get the meat. You don't get the skin. You basically are saying, God, you can have all of it, and we're going to go without. And now, honey, you and I are going to be working in the garden and working in our fields by hand. So that's a huge... And Israel... They wouldn't even give God their burnt offerings. And then the Lord said, and when it came to the sweet cane, you never brought me any. You never, you never gave me a second thought. And, and I'll tell you what, total depravity is a condition where literally we are in a state of sin, confined to sin, locked up under sin, with no regard to God, no love for him, no worship of him, no sacrifice to him. It wants nothing to do with God. So let's talk about that. I'm going to answer five questions regarding sin tonight. So this is letter B in your outline. Let's answer five questions regarding sin. First of all, what is sin? What is sin? The Word of God uses several words to describe the personal sins we commit. I'm going to give you ten words. If you want to give a deep, if you have a pen, you might want to write down ten quick definitions. The Bible calls our sin transgression. Transgression is literally stepping over the line. God sets a line in the ground and says, you cannot cross this line. Adam, you cannot eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat it, there is a penalty, it is death. And the moment Adam stepped over that line to eat of the fruit, he he transgressed. It means to cross the line. The Bible calls our personal sins iniquity. Iniquity is that which is altogether wrong. It is clearly a violation of God's standards. Wrong is wrong. There's no, it's not gray. It's not maybe. It's simply iniquity is absolute, absolute wrong in light of God's holiness. Error. The third word. Error is disregarding the right, completely knowing what's right and disregarding it, going astray from the line that God has established. You're just, error means you're going astray. And it's sin. The next word, sin. This word in the Bible references falling short of a mark or missing the target. We're to hit the bullseye of the target, but sin means we have missed the target completely. <laughs> Hosea, you, oh, it's, it's all over the scriptures. Sin is missing the mark of God's perfection and God's standard. The next word, wickedness. When the Bible uses the word wickedness, it refers to the outworking 
and expression of the evil nature that resides in all mankind. Men who are evil, of which we all have have a sinful nature, when we express and work out the evil nature to our own designs, it's wickedness. The next word, evil. Evil is that which is actually wrong and opposed to God's goodness. If it's evil, it is opposed to God's goodness and God's holy standard. Ungodliness. The Bible uses the word ungodliness. We think ungodliness is like the worst kind of behavior, but actually ungodliness is simply not having reverence for God, no reverence for God. You're not taking God into account in your day-to-day decisions. So the the world lives ungodly. Like, my students, a lot of my students are great kids. Really, they're great kids. They've got good attitudes. They're into sports. They're doing good things. But you know what? They have no thought of God, and they do not take God into account for the decisions. They are simply ungodly. They're living without God. The next word, disobedience. God calls our sin disobedience. It is unwillingness to be led. When we are disobedient, we are not willing to be led or guided by truth. We know what God says, but we are unwilling to go that way. God says, I want you to do this, or I, don't, I want you to not do this. Well, for instance, next week, I'm going to be talking in Titus 3 about our relationship, Faith Baptist Church's relationship to our community. You know what God says to the church regarding our community? Speak evil of no man. That's God's command. We are to speak evil of no one. First of all, not in the church. We're brothers and sisters. But we are not to speak evil of anyone out in our community. And so when somebody is serving us and we don't like the service, if the cashier or the checkout person is slow in, in taking care of our needs, we can speak evil about them. We can kind of get an edge of, I can't believe I'm treated like this. The Bible says, speak evil of no man, no one. That, that's not even an option. So disobedience is knowing that and then not willing to be led by that command. Unbelief. Unbelief is the failure to trust God. And lawlessness, lawlessness in the Bible is open contempt of God's standard. You know what God says in his standard and you just openly defy it. There's just contempt towards God's holiness. So that is, that's how God looks at our sin, as overstepping a line, not willing to be led, falling short of his holy standards, having open contempt against him. All right, what's the nature of sin? So the first question is, what is sin? We just got a great description of it. Um, What is the nature of sin? First of all, letter A, it is defiling. 1 Kings 8.38 says, Our sin is like an oozing plague. It is like pus and grossness coming out of a plague that has afflicted our body. In Zechariah chapter 3, verse 3, Joshua the high priest is standing before the Lord Jesus, and um, Satan is there, and Satan is accusing Joshua the high priest before God. And rightfully so, because Joshua was a sinner. He had transgressed against God's commands, as we all have. So Joshua is before God in filthy garments, and he is guilty as charged. But in Zechariah 3, you know what Jesus does? Takes off all of the old filthy garments 
of Joshua and gives him new robes. What is that picture? You and I, with our sin, we are filthy garments. It is defiling before a holy God. When we get saved, when we trust in Jesus, our filthy garments, garments are taken off and we are given the robe of righteousness, the very righteousness of Christ. In Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 43, sin is said to cause loathing of ourselves. So it's just defiling. Sin defiles everything that it touches. Next, sin is defiant. I want you to realize that when we choose to sin, because as believers, it's a choice. You don't have to sin as a believer. You choose to sin. If you're not believing, if you're, if you're unregenerate, you don't have a choice. You're just going to sin. But believers have a choice to sin or not. We have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Sin, by nature, is defiant. Take your Bibles. Go to Psalm chapter 12, verse 14. Check this out. It doesn't paint a pretty picture. This Psalm 12 was written by David, approximately 1,000 B.C. is when David lived. Okay, so picture, 1,000 B.C. We think things are bad in 2017, don't we? Look at what he says in verse 1. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. In 1,000 B.C., David looks over his empire from his palace He watches the people's behavior in the street, their behavior at the temple, and he stands back and says, Help, Lord, for the godly are disappearing amongst the world. There's none left, very few. That was 1,000 B.C. Now what are we? 3,000 years later, and what are we saying? Help, Lord, for the godly are disappearing from the face of the earth. Same problem, different generation. Look at verse 4. Now, let's start in verse 3. May the Lord cut off all flattery and lips, and the tongue that speaks proud things, who have said, here's what the proud tongue says, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our, our, our own, who is Lord over us? The sinner simply says, nobody will tell me what to do. It is clenching your fist to strike God. It is not only unthroning God. It is literally saying, God, we would ungod you. We would get you off the throne and we would kill you if we had the absolute ability to do so. So every sinful act we commit, it's not just something that God says, oh, funny little children. Oh, ha, ha, ha. oh you people on earth, you, like, you do sin once in a while. No. Every single... Okay. When Adam sinned against God in the garden and he ate the fruit... He literally was saying, God, I wish you were dead. I would become God. I would run this place differently than you. You deserve to die. That is how defiant sin is. It's not something to be coddled or appreciated or loved or or even cherished. It is to be, it is absolute rebellion. Sin is God's would-be murderer. All right, sin is also ingratitude. Romans 2, 4 says that all the unsaved enjoy blessing after blessing after blessing of God with no gratitude, no thankfulness. Sin is just unthankful to God for all that he's given us. Take your Bibles. You're in Psalm. Go to Jeremiah 13. We'll do a couple passages out of Jeremiah. Look with me at Jeremiah 13. This is a good one. 
Sin is incurable. The nature of sin is you cannot cure it on your own. You can't do enough good works, have some religion, do a ritual to overcome the depravity that we are in. The condition that we are in, it's defiling, defiant. It is full of ingratitude. And humanly speaking, it is incurable. Jeremiah 13, verse 23 God is talking about the greatness of the sin of Israel. And he says in verse 23, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. Well, can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin? No, he cannot. I think movie stars can try with all, I don't know what kind of dyes and stuff, but no, an Ethiopian cannot change his skin. Can a leopard change its spots? No, that's, what, that's the nature of those, of those people and, and animals. So then you cannot do good out of a sinful, depraved heart. It is incurable. Psalm 711 says, God is angry with the wicked every day. I know, of, I know often we say God, loves the, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Psalm 7 verse 11 says God is angry with the wicked every day. He loves them, yes, but he is angry with the wicked every day. And so sin is hated by God. And you're in Jeremiah. Go back to chapter 9 verse 5. And this is an important one. Verse 5, Jeremiah 9, verse 5. Everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. Sin is hard work. There, not only does sin bring pain, but it is just hard work to sin and sin and sin. And yet people are willing to do all that hard work to end up with misery, and then they'll work hard to have more misery. It's just sin is hard work. There's a temporary passing pleasure of sin, but sin is hard. The nature of sin produces nothing but pain. All right, how many people does sin affect? Take your Bibles, go with me to Romans chapter 3. Beginning in verse 10. We'll actually begin with verse 9. Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have, been previously, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. All mankind. Doesn't matter what nationality, all are under sin. So how, this total depravity, how many people has it affected? Every single person on earth except the Lord Jesus Christ. At verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. I mean, that makes it really clear. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their, their throat is an open wo- tomb. With their tongues, they have pra- practiced deceit. 
The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. That's all they get accomplished. And the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So every single person on this planet is born totally depraved in a condition as far off from God as they possibly can be. It doesn't mean they're as bad as they could be. They could live probably far worse. But when it comes to their condition or their state before God, there is none righteous. We are all separated and as far from God as we possibly could be. So what are the results of sin? Check this out. The results of sin? Sin causes evil to overpower us. Romans 6 verse 12 and Jeremiah 17 verse 9. Both of those texts show us that we are slaves of sin. Sin can reign and have mastery over our body. It does. Sin rules and and has mastery over our body. Evil overpowers us. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The human heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Above all things, our heart, our, our, our unregenerate heart, thinks evil, we plan evil, we conceive evil, and we do evil. First uh, John 5.19 says, The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So the result of sin is that we are overpowered by sin, overpowered by evil, and we are living under the domain and the control of Satan himself, the prince of, uh, of uh, all liars. Letter B. It dominates our affections and enslaves us. Sin dominates us and enslaves us. Take your Bibles. Go with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Do you want to know the source of angry words? Unforgiving looks, cold shoulders, It is not your unmet needs or your unmet expectations. It's from unsatisfied desires that we have. Verse 1, where do wars and fights come from among you? James chapter 4, verse 1, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? So why do we fight? Why do we argue? Why do we get mad and when we don't get our own way? Why do we? The answer is right here. Because there is a desire for pleasure in my depraved heart that wants to be met. And my, the members here, the, word, the war in your members, it's your body members. It's your hands, your feet, your mouth. It's your eyes, it's your ears, it's your whole body. Literally, when there's a, a desire a pleasure that I want and I don't have, my entire body will go to battle for it. And in an instant, I could be at peace, I could be calm, but if there's, a un, if there's a desire that I want that is apart from God's plan, my whole body will rise up because of the sin nature in me and fight for me to get it, which is then bringing about wars and fights and angry words and lost tempers and all of that. That's where all of that flows out of. Verse 2, you lust, you do not have. So what do you do? You get angry and you war. Your body stands up to fight for you. 
You murder and covet and cannot obtain. Do you think it's literal murder? I think it could very well be literal murder. If not, are angry words ever murder equal to murder? Absolutely. In God's eyes, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, if you get angry with the brother without cause, you have, it's like you have murdered him in God's eyes. You murder and covet because you want and you desire more, and yet you cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Verse 3, you do ask. You're asking for the wrong things, though. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So there's a battle raging in us between our depraved, sinful heart and the Holy Spirit who resides in us. And when we fight and war, it's our old nature rising up to control our mem- the members of our body. That is what sin is. Sin overpowers us. It dominates our affections. It enslaves us. Romans 6.20 says that we are slaves to sin, if that's where we present our members. Isaiah 59, the result of sin is that sin separates us from a holy God. It's not that God can't hear. It's not that he can't see. It's not that his hand isn't long enough to reach us. It's just our sin has put a barrier between us and God. And then Romans 2 and Hebrews 11 speaks about sin brings a person to misery and condemnation and judgment in a lake of fire. There's nothing good about it. The result of sin, ultimate death in a lake of fire. Are there some passing pleasures of sin? Absolutely. That's what makes sin so enticing. There's a, there's a temporary pleasure, but the ultimate end of every sinful act, according to James 1, there's a progression. You, If you act on sin, it will bring ultimate death. Destruction. First John, first John chapter three says that if left unrestrained, we would murder everybody, just like Cain murdered murdered Abel. If left to ourselves without any restraint, because we think we are so great and we deserve to be God, we would kill God and everybody else just so we could rule. That's how. That's how. That's the condition and the state of mankind. Although not everybody acts it out. There's some restraint, some grace, some general grace of God in, in our society. But we, do we see more evil arising? In, in, I mean, we're hearing things. We never thought about guns in schools growing up. I mean, if somebody had a gun in their vehicle growing up, it was like a common thing. It wasn't a big deal. You know, we, had, we all carried pocket knives. And, and now it's like, no, it's... Um, we've had many teacher meetings about how to have safety in school, and they're saying, they're telling, uh, I was at one, one meeting, and they were like, we need to have more cameras. We need to have um, security guards. We need to have a, a metal detector where you, everybody passes through a metal detector. We need to have somebody checking backpacks as they come into school. And then I'm like, but wait a minute. I have a better solution. You know, all of those things are not going to work. They may keep some things from coming in, but people will get around those things what, we, what you need to do is deal with the heart because the heart of man is desperately sinful. And if man's heart is renewed by the Holy Spirit, well, they can have a gun and they won't use it in, in that way. They could have a knife and they wouldn't, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's a matter, it's an issue of the heart. So, what is depravity? Depravity means we are all under sin. We are slaves of a sin nature, producing fruits of sin, we are spiritually dead. We are under judgment. We are under Satan's power. We are separated from God. 
we are lost, and we are heading for eternal punishment in the lake of fire. According to the doctrine of total depravity, there is no hope, there is no light, there is no life. It is simply despair and darkness because that is all that we can produce. But Jesus, right? But Jesus. Let's look at Titus. Go back to Titus now, as I was in this morning, Titus chapter 2, for just the end of it now. What is the solution to our depraved condition? The only solution is this. And this is what I want. I know you know all these things already, but I want you to know how desperately wicked we are without Christ, which makes the cross shine that much more glorious. Listen to this, verse 14. Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, gave himself for us. Listen, everybody. Was there anything lovely about the last half hour of verses? Was there anything lovely about our totally depraved, rebellious, seeking to murder God state? Nothing. There was nothing lovely about us. There was nothing that even God would desire and say, oh, man, you know what? They're kind of bad, but they're kind of good, too. God looks on humanity and says, they stink. They all stink. They have all fallen short. They are all confined under sin. They are all rebellious. They are all wicked, with wicked minds alienated from me. But Jesus Christ gave himself for us. He substituted his life on the cross for us in the condition that we were. What does Romans 5 say? Why we were, why we were yet while we were yet in sin, while we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. He, he died for us. Um, listen to this. He gave himself for us, verse 14, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. He might buy us back every lawless deed. He would purchase us back from that. And purify, which means get rid of the entire record of sin, our entire nature of sin, purify for himself his own special people, boiling over for good works. Man, that is it right there. One more verse, 1 Peter chapter 2. Go over to the right of your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 21. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Just I want you to really appreciate and love the Lord Jesus Christ so much, so much tonight. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us. He suffered for us, wicked people leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He, he could have. He's perfect God, innocent, perfect, without sin God. He could easily have dealt with these people. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, 
Who, verse 24, who himself bore our sins. So it wasn't just the physical suffering on the cross that was so bad, but he bore our sins. All those things that I just told you about, the transgressions, the error, the disobedience, the missing the mark, all of those 10 words describing our sin, all of the defiling, defiant, ingratitude, incurable, hating by, hated by God, all of those descriptions of sin, all of the results of sin, all of that he bore in his own body. And he never once sinned, but he paid for all of that junk and garbage that we have done. Every single thing he, he has paid for in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins... We, we, we're, we, we're crucified in Christ. Our old man is dead. How much sin can, an old, can a dead man do? None. As a believer in Christ, you are dead to sin. Reckon yourselves indeed dead unto sin and alive unto Christ. When we sin, you choose to do it. You choose to defy God. You choose to stand up and say, I know exactly what you're saying, but I'm not doing it. Um, but we, having died to sins... Here's what God's purpose is, that we might live for righteousness. Same thing as what Titus 2 says in verse 14, that God is purifying for himself his own special people. Here it says, same, same thought, that we might live for righteousness. That's what God wants from us this week. He wants us to live righteously by his power. And then it says, just to remind us, listen, you guys, by whose stripes you were healed, by And literally, a singular stripe, Christ on the cross, brought about healing from all that desperately wicked sin. Don't you love our salvation? Don't you love our Savior? Isn't he great? I mean, we were in the worst condition, and yet he has raised us up out of that pit, and he has made us children of God? What a Savior. See, that's why we should... That's why... That's why this is important. That's why being here is important. That's why being part of a body is important. The people I see out here, they are locked under sin, guilty, condemned, and going to hell. And Jesus wants to rescue them this week. This week, he is on a rescue mission for all the people around us, and you and I are his messengers. We're not saving anybody. We tell them there is a Savior. And I already know this week I've got some appointments set up with people to do that with. So pray. Some are, uh, let me just think if any are Nicodemuses. I don't think so. Mostly they're the irreligious. They're the Samaritan woman at the well. And didn't you love what Randy said about the Samaritan woman at the well? The progression? Because she starts up by saying, you are, you're a Jew. Why would you talk to me? But then after that, she she uses the word sir, a little more respect. And then she calls him a prophet, more respect. And then she calls him Messiah. You know, there are some irreligious that I know. I talk about Jesus. They're like, and so I'm working with this group of teens. And they are, they're they're way past the, ah, Jesus is just a teacher. They're like, could he be the Savior? I mean, that's where they're at. They're so close. So close. Um, Adults, hey, there's adults that we need to reach too. So I don't know what your week looks like. We are on a rescue mission. So let's go.
right? Let's go. Father, thank you for this time and your word. We just spent a half an hour looking at our condition, mankind's condition in their natural state before you. We are locked up under sin. We are guilty. We are condemned. We are without hope, without light, without God. We are desperately wicked. But you, by your grace, you have rescued us out of that. You've given us the Holy Spirit to empower us, to give us direction, to convict us, to to build us up. We are so thankful for all the provision in Christ. We want to live for you. This is part of our, this is why we're here. We want to live for you. And we want victory. Thank you that all of that is found in Christ. We know that we have friends and neighbors that are locked up in sin. They are totally depraved. They're not as bad as maybe some other people are about their conduct, but in their state, they're far from you. They are separated eternally. We want this week, Father, to see some rescued. So give us the power to, the, to share the gospel. Give us a love to open our mouth and let people know there is a Savior that wants to save. So purify us, your own treasured possession. Thank you for this local church and all that are in it. Continue to strengthen and build us up. We love you. We're looking forward to the next week's discussion about grace. What is grace? And why is that so important after thinking about depravity? So continue to teach us, Father. We love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.